you know, it's no secret how Jacob and I feel about all those certifications out there. And we see too many incompetent belts claiming to be certified, but they're really not good problem solvers, project managers, or change leaders. So I will be providing what I'll call an elite level of mixed training. It'll have one-on-one coaching. It'll have self-paced online learning, whatever pace you can go. And then you'll get training all through two projects. And all these can be concurrent. This is what we're doing. We're doing a subscription model. This means that you decide how much that you're going to pay by how long you take to complete the program. If you finish faster, you pay less. It's it's pretty much that straightforward. There is a common misconception that there are a select few of recognized certifying bodies. There is literally no universal international central certifying body for Lean Six Sigma. There are many who keep trying. There are many who claim to be. There are some that are very good, and there are some that are very, very bad. And because you are a listener to the podcast, you should be able to trust that we, Jacob and I, know what we're doing. Go to e6s-methods.com slash bb2017 with the password, all lowercase, E6S-BB2017. That's the password. Come April 30th, be ready to learn. Welcome to the E6S Methods Podcast with Jacob and Aaron, your weekly dose of tips and tricks to achieve excellent performance in your business and career. Join us as we explore deeper into the practical world of Lean, Six Sigma, project management, and design thinking. In this episode number 159, we speak with healthcare improvement specialist Shauna Dykema on her work applying task-driven activity-based costing at the Medical University of South Carolina. If you're just tuning in for the first time, find all our back episodes on our podcast table of contents at e6s-methods.com. If you like this episode, be sure to click the like link in the show notes. It's easy. Just tap our logo, click, and you're done. Tap, click, done. Here we go. Donna Dykema is an improvement facilitator in the Performance Improvement Department at the Medical University of South Carolina. She is a certified Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt and a certified professional in patient safety. Prior to joining MUSC, Donna managed the South Carolina Hospital Association's High Reliability and Just Culture initiatives in 26 hospitals across the state. Her experience also includes clinical rotations in multiple specialty areas and over six years in healthcare, clinical, laboratory, and translational research. Shauna received her BA and a master's in healthcare administration and attended medical school at the University of South Carolina. She is a member of the American Society for Quality, Institute for Industrial and Systems Engineers, Society for Health Systems, National Association for Healthcare Quality, and International Society for Performance Improvement. Now, I'm embarrassed to uh, ask you this now because I meant to ask you this before. What is the proper pronunciation of your name? <laughs> My name is pronounced Shauna Dykema. Shauna Dykema. Okay, so I was calling you Shana, so I apologize for that. It's all right. No one ever gets it right the first time. <laughs> all right, oh. so so Shauna, um, I'd like to welcome you to the E6S Methods Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it is my pleasure. So before we really begin, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into healthcare and, and what drew you to this particular market? Absolutely. As far back as my parents can remember, um, I can't remember as far back as they can, I've always wanted to be a doctor. And so that was the career path I initially took. And two years into medical school, I came to the realization that I did not want to be a doctor. <laughs> Um, so I got out of that as quickly as I could and in looking around at what I wanted to do and what was interesting to me, um, I wanted to stay in healthcare mm-hmm. and we had actually had a lecture in medical school from the chief quality officer at Palmetto Health in Columbia, which is the teaching hospital for my medical school. And it was a fascinating lecture on hand hygiene 
and a campaign that they had had for physicians to wear bow ties or no ties, mm -hmm. uh, rather than long ties, to prevent infection transmission. And as he was reading off the effects and how many infections they had reduced, uh, it was like a light bulb went off. I was, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, I want to make healthcare safer, uh, more equitable, more efficient, all of these things that I think about as a customer in other industries I want to make for patients coming to the hospital. So, I mean, you brought up hand hygiene, and that it still astounds me, at least maybe it's just by rumor, but there's still a pretty high percentage of non-compliance with doctors washing their hands. Is that is that true, or is that all just rumor? I think it depends on the location. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think inpatient facilities have done a very good job, and they've also been under a great deal more scrutiny um, to increase their hand hygiene numbers, decrease their infection rates. But I do think that there are pockets um, of healthcare organizations, potentially in outpatient settings, that uh, hand hygiene may not be top of mind because it's not we're not going into really sick people's rooms all the time. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Sure. So you, so two years was it? Was it one thing that struck you as this really isn't for me, or just the 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 drudgery of of what it takes to get to that point in medical school? I think it was a combination of both. Medical school is not a fun place to be, and I don't think anyone goes into it expecting it to be fun. Mm -hmm. But it was the realization that doctors today, um, or the doctors they were preparing us to be was not the same as the doctors of 20 years ago. It wasn't you go in, you see your patients, you take care of them, um, you follow them through their course of care. It's Care today is really much more episodic. There's a whole lot more regulation, a whole lot more paperwork, mm -hmm. and a whole lot more legal requirements that physicians now have to worry about in addition to taking care of their patients. And that was one of the things that really... Uh, didn't sit terribly well with me. I wanted to help people, not spend my day bogged down in administrative work. Um, once I heard this lecture on quality, the realization that as a physician, I can only help as many patients as I can see in a day. Right. Whereas working in quality or working in engineering, I can help potentially every patient that walks through our doors. Mm-hmm. So is there a bit of an irony that you were trying to avoid uh, the administrative side and, and now you're doing almost all administrative stuff? Or um, I would say it's, I suppose it's technically uh, considered administration, right. but it's less um, paperwork. I do very little paperwork. I, I would say the, the most boggy thing that I have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis is managing my email inbox. Okay. So your your degree is in healthcare administration, and did your degree prepare you for the type of work you're doing? How is it different than what other healthcare degrees might look like? So I have a master's in healthcare administration, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, and there are one to two, possibly three other degrees people may consider. Um, you may choose to get an MBA and then go into healthcare. You may choose to get an MPH, which is a master's in public health, and go into healthcare. Or in my particular field, um, as we're looking at Lean and Six Sigma, there are lots of industrial engineers who get bachelor's or master's in IE mm -hmm. that then go into healthcare engineering. Um, I would say that the master's in healthcare administration prepared me well for the hospital environment, the healthcare environment, um, the challenges 
and administrative situations that are unique to healthcare. It's a very different business mm-hmm. than many other businesses. So I chose that route over an MBA because I still wanted to focus on the business side of things. I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing provides a good return on investment for our customers. Mm-hmm. And so an MHA is really, it's like an MBA, but focused almost exclusively on healthcare. So when we take our finance and our economics courses, we'll get the foundations, but then we'll dive into, okay, how does insurance reimbursement work? How do DRGs work? How does the whole healthcare billing and payment system work? Um, Which is incredibly complicated, possibly one of the reasons healthcare is so expensive here and something that an MBA in another business wouldn't have to deal with. So as you mentioned, uh, industrial engineers, and um, you know, there's a lot of at least desire to transfer between industries uh, in Lean Six Sigma and industrial engineering. If, as you've seen it from the inside and you have IEs come in or maybe people who previously were in manufacturing or banking or some other industry, what sort of things would you wish they've had better exposure to or some extra training in um, before they got there? Is there anything that comes to mind that you said, oh, they're pretty good, but I wish they had more exposure to this area. Sure. I, I don't think it would hurt for them to take uh, perhaps a medical terminology course. I would say that's the biggest thing. In our department at the Medical University of South Carolina, we have um, black belts from the chemical manufacturing industry, previously um, military black belts. And one of the biggest things that they tend to mention coming into healthcare is that they just don't have the vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of acronyms in healthcare. Um, medical terminology gets thrown around all over the place, and most people just assume that because you work in a hospital, you know what these words mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so, medical terminology would certainly help. Um, it often surprises um, IEs or black belts from other industries coming to healthcare how complicated, just how terribly, terribly complicated nearly everything is. Um, things that would be very streamlined in other industries. For example, the billing and payments are not simple here. And so it wouldn't hurt to go through a little bit of basic healthcare finance. So mm-hmm. how do hospitals um, get reimbursed? Where, where does the payment come from? How does you know, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid, how do all of those things play into where our reimbursement comes from? Because as we work on improvement projects and we talk about who our customer is, um, healthcare is in an industry that's somewhat unique in that our customers, the patients, are typically not the customers who pay us. Right, right. That, yeah, absolutely makes that complex system there and uh, changes, well, not just changes, but uh, it means you have at least the stakeholders of who the people who are paying and the stakeholders of the people you're caring for, plus what other what other regulatory and internal stakeholders you have to worry about? Right. So before we get further into the topic of the well, with the main topic, I thought maybe give a little plug for MUSC. What what is uh, what is MUSC all about? And I see we've got a nice slogan here: changing what's possible. Yes. So MUSC is the Medical University of South Carolina. It is a health system that's comprised of a 700 bed tertiary academic medical center. Uh, a free-leaning children's hospital, an institute of psychiatry where we do inpatient mental health. And we also are one of the oldest medical schools in the United States. Um, Our College of Medicine was founded in 1824. We have uh, five other colleges as well. So we provide a whole range of 
um, postgraduate training in medicine, nursing, dental medicine, and other biomedical sciences. Uh, and, and you did your education there and then decided to carry on in professionally there as well? So I did not. Um, I am from, so the NUSC is in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm born and raised here, but I did all of my education and training in Columbia, the state capital at the University of South Carolina. So you don't have much of an accent. I, I expected a bit of an accent for uh, South, <laughs> South Carolina, and, and that's that's my fault, but I was, <laughs> I was expecting a little bit more of an accent. Yeah. All right, enough about that. So let's talk about uh, TD. Strangely, I have a hard time with this acronym, but it's TDABC, Time-Driven Activity-Based Costing. Uh, what can you tell us about this, and how does this work in healthcare? So time-driven activity-based costing is, um, I'm going to use air quotes here, the next generation of activity-based costing, which mm -hmm. if you've been doing process improvement for a decade or more, you, you probably have heard of activity-based costing. Um, so TDABC is just adding another dimension to traditional activity-based costing. I think it's a wonderful tool for healthcare organizations to use because most of them are using, I say most, I'm going to go with 80% or more, are using costing methodologies that really don't give them an accurate picture of what a value stream or a service or a product truly costs to the organization. Mm -hmm. So when I first started reading up on this, and I'll be honest, I didn't understand, I didn't really understand what the method was until I looked at some of the resources you had in your presentation. This seems to mirror what I had been doing maybe 15, 20 years ago in aerospace. And, and we had everything down to the very pretty granular task level based off of the time it took to do that task because we only got reimbursed for, or I shouldn't say reimbursed, but the currency they have were man hours. So we only got paid based off of the manual man hours uh, for particular tasks. Is is So it kind of surprises me that this is maybe new wave or is this – is this considered novel, or am I am I inaccurate in my description of what I was doing before? So for healthcare, I would say absolutely this is novel. Mm -hmm. This has only been around for a few years, and um, the resources you mentioned, if any of the listeners want to look up the Kaplan articles in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, those are good primers on TDABC and healthcare. In healthcare, a lot of process improvement methodologies and tools are very, very young. Healthcare really did not start getting into Lean and Six Sigma until the early 2000s, whereas in other industries, these are things that have been around for decades or longer. So in terms of as a tool in general, is it novel? I don't think so. In healthcare, is it novel? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So in that case, what's the current level of uptick and acceptance of this uh, that you've seen so far? So TDABC, unlike some other lean tools, because it is highly based in data and measurement, um, has been accepted fairly well. I just don't think it has been widely popularized. Mm -hmm. um, physicians and other clinicians tend to be very data-driven, so anytime we can present them with actual numbers, it goes over very well. Other lean tools, when we talk about teamwork or brainstorming or getting them through the design of a process – it's much harder because we don't really have data to base things on. I can't quantify necessarily how well your team is performing. So the soft side of things, uh, difficult to bring people along? At times, it can be. Yeah. You are listening to E6S Methods Podcast, brought to you by E6S Industries. 
Join us on our website at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. If you can afford $9 per day and, you know, 20% extra potential pay bump wouldn't be bad, go to e6s-methods.com slash bb2017 with the password e6s-bb2017. I will be providing one-on-one coaching, self-paced online learning. You'll be certified as somebody completely capable of performing at a black belt level. It is possible to complete the program within two months. Even if it takes you a full year, you'll still pay several thousand dollars less than with a comparable program. So you have these other methods called, uh, let's say, relative cost to charge and relative value unit, which I guess are sort of table stakes in healthcare? Yes. So your typical hospital um, or larger healthcare practice will be using one or both of these methodologies for costing. And neither one of them gives a terribly accurate picture of what things cost because they both rely on contrived ratios, which you then multiply by your costs or your charges to come up with what something costs you. So Mm -hmm. in RCC, in relative cost to charge, a typical organization will take all of their costs over a certain period of time, perhaps the last year, the last fiscal year, and divide that by all of the things that they charged. And in healthcare, what you charge someone is not what the thing costs. What you charge is the price that you tell someone they want them to pay, mm-hmm. um, knowing that you'll only be reimbursed for a percentage of that because right. our payers are typically insurers or the government. So we'll take our costs over our charges, get a ratio, and then we'll multiply this ratio by the charge of a given procedure or diagnosis to arrive at a back-end calculation of what it costs or what we're making the assumption that it costs. Um, and this is terribly, terribly inaccurate because not every procedure or every process or every product will have the same ratio of cost to charges as our overall cost to charges. Some things will be more profitable, some things will be less, but we're making the assumption that everything has the same ratio to arrive at a back-end charge calculation. So most uh, healthcare organizations using this methodology have no idea what things actually cost them. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true for RBUs. So the relative value unit methodology came about in the past few years because we realized that RCC accounting was not accurate. There needed to be a better way to account for what clinician, the work clinicians were doing and how we paid for it. So the RVU methodology was arrived at, and this is um, widely used by government payers. So when we take RBUs, someone, some entity, in this case perhaps the government or an accrediting organization, um, will assign a service or a process, a value unit, using air quotes here, um, that supposedly reflects the relative effort, skill, and training that's required to complete that service relative to other services. So in this case, a surgery would have more RVUs versus your typical primary care office visit. Mm -hmm. So then you take your total expenses over a given time period, divide them by your total RVUs to generate a cost per RVU. So you would then multiply the cost per RVU by the number of RVUs for a service to get what that service costs. 
And the problem with RVUs, again, is that this ratio of total expenses by total RVUs overestimates, so number one, RVUs overestimate specialty care and underestimate effort required for primary. Okay. Because we're saying it takes more skill to do a specialty case and perhaps less skill or less time for a primary care case. But then we say we want primary care doctors to be the ones coordinating all of the specialty care for a patient. We want them to be the ones following the patient through the course of their care, having these long conversations with them about their quality of life, their care plan, any end-of-life directives. All of these things take time, but they're very underestimated by the RBU system. So you don't get paid very much for doing those sorts of visits. So is that – sounds like there's a great assumption that, uh, say, for instance, if I have a PhD in a subject matter, that uh, I'm worth – more because of my deep knowledge, whereas somebody who may be more of a general general purpose uh, educator or something who has to have a lot of knowledge in a bunch of different areas doesn't get paid as much because they're not considered as much of a specialist? I think that would be a good analogy to use. And I think that's an attitude that healthcare is trying to work through, that other industries have already had their growing pains and worked through, that your subject matter expert isn't necessarily the person with the highest degree. It's the person who knows that area or that subject matter the best. And so this is what RBUs do. They give the surgeon a higher relative value than your primary care doctor. And I'm not saying that surgery isn't complex and we don't need surgeons, but I think it vastly overestimates the one relative to the other. Right. Gotcha. So there's a couple pie charts that I, I took from your presentation, which shows visually the discrepancy between the TD, ABC, and uh, RCC accounting. In particular, because you're the expert knows how to look at these, what in particular stands out as, wow, this is a big discrepancy? So the biggest, for those um, listeners who will be able to see the pie charts, the biggest discrepancy by far um, was the cost of implants. And so these pie charts were for a TDABC project that we did for total knee replacements. RCC accounting, because we're using that ratio of cost to charges, um, indicated that implants in that methodology were about a quarter of the costs. Mm -hmm. Um, And when in reality, they're almost half of the cost. So we're underestimating the cost of the implants. We're overestimating the cost of space and equipment, for example, um, we're overestimating the costs of our other clinicians involved in the process. Um, so it's much, much less accurate, both in terms of attributing different cost centers, but also in terms of total numbers. So the RCC um, accounting said that this procedure should have cost the organization almost twice as much as what we arrived at in the actual TDABC methodology. It was about a 44% difference in mm-hmm. total cost. Now, does how does that affect things from an administrative side or, or anybody who's making decisions on how to run the hospital as a self-sustaining entity? Using the RCC accounting, um, what are the risks that we, they would fall upon if they trusted those numbers? So one of the huge risks and one of the big reasons we embarked on this project is for any healthcare facility one of the things that they're either already experiencing or will experience soon is bundled payments from Medicare and Medicaid. So total hip and total knee replacements are two of the surgeries that 
you either already have a bundled payment if you're in that first wave of bundled payment recipients or you're going to be uh, forced to uh, deal with bundled payments. And what that means is Medicare and Medicaid will no longer pay for each portion of a service. So they won't pay for the surgeon separately from the OR suite, separately from their care on the hospital floor. Uh The hospital will receive one lump sum payment for the patient, no matter how long they stay, no matter how complicated the surgery is, no matter how many people are involved in the care of this patient from when they come in to when they're discharged. Um, So as an administrator, if we're trusting this RCC accounting number, which is very, very inflated, it may look to us like we cannot survive, we can't even break even using this bundled payment number. And so that was one of the impetuses for us moving forward is once bundled payments reach us, will we be able to at least break even using that bundled payment number? Okay. So as an administrator, if I saw that number, the RCC number, I would have said, well, no, we can't survive under bundled payments. We need to either look at not doing total knees, which is not an option for our hospital, Mm -hmm. or we need to look at how do we chop this number in half? Right. So based on the TDABC number, we're much, much closer. We can actually break even under CMS, which means that any improvements we make to our process will result in a profit for the hospital, which is one of the things bundled payments want to drive. We don't want to um, inflate how much the government is paying for these, but we want to give an incentive to hospitals. If they can make it cost less to themselves, they still get the bundled payment and they get to keep whatever costs they reduce. Right, right. Excellent. All right. So before we get any too much further, uh, we talked a little bit about how it's better. How do you do it, though? How do you perform a TDABC? So TDABC, the process itself is very, very simple. And anyone who's done process mapping before, Um, be it a simple process map or a value stream map, you've already got half the steps down. So with any project, we choose our process and define our scope. So what is it that we want to look at um, and where does it start and where does it end? We can look at a process cycle or a value stream. I would say one of the big differences between TDABC and value stream mapping is that we may choose to do an activity-based costing on a small piece of a value stream. So we may do a TDABC just on the NOR time for a surgery rather than the entire value stream from the patient flowing into the hospital to the patient flowing out. So we may pick small snippets of that, but at the beginning we want to define what that is. As with any project, we don't want scope creep and we don't want to boil the ocean. Once we have all of that defined, Then we do our process maps. And so if you've done a process map before, the first three steps should be no problem for you. Again, with your process maps, especially with TDABC, we want extremely detailed maps. We want very granular level data. So when I do my TDABC maps, I start as specific and granular as possible. Um, And then if we need to make them more macro level, if we're doing a presentation to someone at a higher level who just needs an overview, we can make macro steps out of those. But when we talk about using TABC for lean improvements, I need to know those granular level steps because this is where we're going to find our waste. I'm glad to hear that you're getting granular with these. And, and sometimes I find that this is a, uh, 
This is a pra- based off of a practitioner's personal preference on how granular they go. Now, there's 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 a lot of there's a couple different schools of thought on how granular to go in the in this industry. Is do you get any pushback for being that granular? Granular or um, or is everybody recognized that this is necessary? So, as with anything new um, and Lean and Six Sigma process mapping, all of this is still fairly new for a lot of hospitals and healthcare organizations. Um, you will get a little bit of pushback. You start wanting to do something different because you have to remember that the people that you're mapping with aren't necessarily trained in Lean or Six Sigma. They may not know what end this level of detail is going to. Mm-hmm. So helping them to understand that, but also letting them see the end product um, helps to break down some of that resistance. So once we made the granular level maps and everyone could see every single step of every person involved in this care, it was very eye-opening for them, number one, because they had no idea that getting a patient through a total knee replacement was so complicated. Mm-hmm. Most of them never see the whole process. They only see their portion of it. So it was eye-opening, but also they began to realize this is why we're getting to this level of detail because we can then point out, well, why does this person do this step? Why do these three steps happen at this point in the process? It would be faster if we moved them over here. So they start to see why we get so detailed. But there could be some, and there was some resistance at the very beginning. You know, why do you need to know this? Why do you need to know that? I was like, trust me, I need to know, and it will make sense to you once we put the full map together. That, yeah, that, and that, that can be uh, sometimes a very hard sell, cause, and it's true with any, any project, you have to get people to come along with a sense of faith and trust in you as a person, uh, as the practitioner, getting them to trust you that you're not out there to threaten them in any way and that the information won't be used against them. Right. Um, Right. So, all right. So you've got, you've got the, uh, you're to the, call it a value added map of some sort. And you said you've used it, can use it to identify waste. Then you're on step four for time estimates. Sure. So once you have your process maps, so we'll go through and build the steps first, make sure everyone is good with this is how the process works. And then we go out and we manually observe. So for all of these, because there are so many different people involved and, Um, As you mentioned before, perhaps some vested interests involved in this process. We, the Performance Improvement Department, went out and manually collected this data ourselves, um, along with several of our interns and student workers, Mm -hmm. um, to get time estimates for each step in the process. So if I'm thinking about this, this this is some people standing watching with a stopwatch and a clipboard? Absolutely. How did that go over? It really depended on the area and how this was explained to people. And again, I think a lot of this rests on how this is presented to people, because when people experience anything new, Mm -hmm. um, we can usually there's a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of reticence. Most people do not jump into something brand new, feet first, ready to go. So in the explanation of what we're doing and why we're here, it really needs to be presented to people that this is not punitive. I'm not going to go report this back to your manager that you spent 16 minutes on break today. Um, (laughs) This is really me just wanting to know. And I usually present it as I'm not the expert. So I'm not a nurse. I'm not a physician. I don't know what your process is like. And most people open up to that because Very rarely, especially in healthcare, 
do people go around asking them, hey, what is what is your day to day work like? You know,、right. what goes well, what doesn't go well, what do you think could work better? You know, how much time do you think you spend doing this?、Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them tend to open up really well when you just want to know what they do. Thanks for listening to episode 159 of the E Success Methods podcast. Stay tuned for the second half of this interview with Shauna Dykema and her work using TDABC at MUSC. Don't forget to click like or dislike for this episode in the show notes. Tap click done. If you have a question, comment, or advice, leave a note in the comment section or contact us directly. Feel free to email me, Aaron A A R O N at eSuccess-Methods.com or on our website. We reply to all messages. If you hear something you like, then clamor and share it. Don't forget, you can find notes and graphics for all shows and more at www.e6s-methods.com. Join us on our website at www.e6s-methods.com. Journey through success. I will be providing one-on-one coaching, self-paced online learning as a reward for you being a loyal listener to the podcast. I will lock in twenty participants at this price. Go to www.e6s-methods.com/bb2017. Here's the password: lowercase e6s-bb2017. So if you can afford that nine dollars per day, you're hardworking, you're superstar in the making. I wouldn't hesitate. Once that space fills up, that's it. 